uh, we bought a church. Hey, yes, we did. I know. I'm still sort of reeling from all of this. Um, maybe you, you are le- reeling less because you don't live it every day the way I live it every day. But it really is a miracle that we were able to buy this remarkable, astounding um, property and, and to finally have now, as Grace Valley Church, a permanent home uh, in Dundas, a location that we can call our own and from which we can launch ministry. And it all happened so incredibly quickly. Um, yeah, less than a month ago still, uh, we were in the process of putting together our offer after having heard only uh, two weeks prior to that, less than two weeks prior to that actually, that this opportunity was arising. And, and it was just in that moment when we found out that the property was coming for sale and we needed to decide whether we wanted to put in an offer and make a bid on this property, I thought to myself, how on earth can we make such a ridiculously big decision in such an incredibly short period of time? And you may remember I said to all of us uh, who were here on, I think, the 19th or this, I don't know, maybe the week before that, I said, we'll, we'll know... <laughs> We'll know if it's God's will for us to own this property if we're successful with our bid. And we were successful with our bid. Therefore, it is God's will that we own this property. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. What do I mean by that? That it was God's will for us to own this property. Um, am I saying that that... that we have now discovered that it was the right thing for us to do. Uh, we, we all want to please God with our decisions, right? And, and Grace Valley Church, as, a, as a, a corporate entity, as a body, as a family, we want to please God with our decisions as well. So, so when we were deciding whether to buy this property, uh, were, we, were we saying it would be God's will, it would be the right thing to do, it would be the thing that pleased God if we were successful? Uh, you guys, uh, I'm sure in your lives, want to, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to do things that please God as well. You want to make decisions that are what you could call in line with God's will. So, you have to decide things like, what school am I going to go to? When you're done high school and if you're planning to go to college or university, do I go to college? Do I go to university? Which college do I go to? Which university do I go to? If you're interested in meeting somebody and you want to date, you ask yourself the question, well, who should I date? And if this person I'm dating is the person that I should eventually marry, is it, is it God's will that we be together? Is it God's will that I, that I commit to this person for the rest of my life? People have big decisions to make all throughout their lives. And in the last couple of years, we've had all kinds of decisions that we've had to make, and people are arguing about the decisions that they're making arguing over things like vaccines, whether to get vaccines or not get vaccines, arguing about uh, what the government's doing with respect to the pandemic, shutdowns and lockdowns and opening up, etc., vaccine passports, the prospect of vaccine mandates, the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. What's God's will in all of this? How should Christians think about God's will as it relates to making decisions? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
This title of this series that we're entering into for the next uh, few weeks together is Wise Up, Decision-Making and the Will of God. What we're going to do is we're going to wrestle with how Christians are to make big decisions and small decisions, how to conduct their lives and the decision-making that they have to do in their lives in relationship to the will of God. We hope to clarify these things like God's will and what does it mean to follow God's will, etc. And I hope that, that for those few weeks that we do this together, that we will be very, very practical and, and very, I will be very clear and praying for a lot of clarity and that you will actually, by the end of it, have tools to help you sort of work through the difficult decisions that you have to make over the course of your life. Now, today we're going to start with a definition. God's will. What is it? If, if we're going to make the right decisions, we need to have the right definitions of things. What does it mean to discern God's will? Like in our text, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 2, what does it say? It says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. Okay. And there's another place in Ephesians 5. It says this, beginning of verse 15. Ephesians 5, beginning of verse 15, it says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Understand what the Lord's will is. What does that mean? What does it mean to test and approve God's will? What does it mean to understand what the Lord's will actually is? Well, the Bible uses this phrase, God's will, or the will of God, or the Lord's will. It uses this phrase in two ways. First of all, it's used to describe what's called God's sovereign will, or God's plan will. What do we mean by that? Well, God's sovereign will is His predetermined plan for everything that happens in the universe. And for those of you who love note-taking, let me me repeat it for you so you can get this down. God's sovereign will is His predetermined plan for everything that happens in the universe. An example of where the Bible describes that is actually in Daniel chapter 4. Let me give you a bit of the context. Daniel is a man who's living in Babylon. Babylon is ruled by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is an extremely arrogant man and very self-assured man to the point where he basically believes that he is a manifestation of God himself. He is God in the flesh. And he basically says that he can do whatever he wants. And And he has this dream And some weird stuff happens in this dream, and he comes to Daniel, who works for him, who's good at interpreting dreams, and he says, Daniel, what does this dream mean? And Daniel says, well, because you've been so arrogant and so proud in the face of God, God is going to make you lose your mind. You're going to go insane, and you're going to start acting like an animal, and you're going to live out in the fields, and you're going to eat the grass, and the rain's going to fall on you while you're naked, and you're going to be basically like a beast. And God's going to do that to teach you a lesson. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And for a period of time, he lives in the fields and he he eats the grass and he's crazy. And then God restores his sanity to him. And then 
Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, not a follower of the true God, not a believer in Yahweh. This is what he says. He says, God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Listen to this. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Hear that? He does as he pleases. One definition of power, a good definition of power, is simply this, the ability to act. The ability to act. Now, when you can do as you please, and like it says, there is no one who can hold back your hand, no one can, nothing can hold you back from doing as you please, that means you have complete power to act. You have total power to act. You have absolute power to act. That's the kind of power That's the kind of will that God has and wields. It's important to remember that. He doesn't just have it, He wields it. God has absolute power to do whatever He wants, and He wields that absolute power. He does whatever He wants. What does this say? What does Nebuchadnezzar say? He says, He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven, so in the spiritual realm, okay, and with the peoples of the earth, that is, the earthly realm in which we live. Now, a couple things you need to remember about this will of God, this sovereign will of God, this this plan will of God, meaning that He predetermines everything that will happen in the universe. Three things you need to remember about it. First of all, one, this plan will, this sovereign will of God is absolutely certain. That is, it cannot be thwarted, it cannot even be frustrated, it cannot be called into question. God has a plan for absolutely everything in this universe, and that plan will be realized. There is no way in which we have to be afraid or concerned that, ooh, is God going to actually get done what he thinks he wants to get done? No, no, no. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? No one can hold back your hand. God wants to accomplish something, it will be accomplished. That's the first thing. Second thing, okay, that plan is absolutely exhaustive. That plan is absolutely exhaustive. What do I mean by that? It means that absolutely everything in the universe is determined by that plan and is orchestrated according to that plan. That includes the orbits of the, of the planets as they spin around the sun and the galaxies spin around the universe. I don't know if galaxies spin around the universe, but if they do, they do it according to God's plan. It also includes every last little piece of dust. If you look through, you know, these beautiful stained glass windows, the sun shines through them and you look in the air and you see dust flitting around there. Most of it's dead skin, by the way, but anyhow, uh, that's what the internet tells me. and you see these little, little pieces of dust flitting around. Those things are moving according to God's exhaustive plan for absolutely everything. And you say, come on, hold on. Does the Bible really teach that? Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know what that means? That means when you're playing a game with dice... 
Anybody here like settlers of Catan? Half my family should be putting up their hand and one person in my family should not at all. Um, I love settlers of Catan, but this is what I hate about it. it. It all comes down to the dice. I mean, yeah, there's strategy and stuff, but if, you're, if your numbers aren't getting rolled, and those of you are like, I've never heard of Settlers of Catan, you've heard of Monopoly, right? You buy the best property, you put hotels on it, and you sit there, and you watch people roll the dice, and they scoot past it time and time and time again until you're broke. That's why I went into the ministry and not business, because I have bad luck with the dice. There's no such thing as bad luck. Because even though the die, the lot is cast in the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. And now you're freaking out and going, well, what does that mean about human responsibility and my freedom, etc.? Come back next week. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Third thing, and this is really important, this sovereign will, this plan will of God is secret. It's secret. It is known to Him and Him only. And the only way that you and I can discover that will of God is in hindsight, is by looking in the rearview mirror. You see, God hides that will until it happens, until it unfolds. You don't know what it is, but once it unfolds, then you can say, aha, I know that's what it is. So when we say, when I say, we'll know if it's God's will that, that we are supposed to own this property, if it happens, that's what I'm saying. Is it part of God's sovereign will that we own this property? We'll know when we come out the other side of this purchase process and we're the ones who are owning the property. You get what I'm saying? Now, this is super duper, 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 duper important. This is huge. Listen, just one chapter back from the passage that we read. So, we read Romans 12. Well, a few verses up in Romans 11... Paul says this, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and to Him, and sorry, and for Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever and ever. You hear what it said? His paths are beyond tracing out. This sovereign will of God is beyond your ability to kind of figure out ahead of time. You can't. God's sovereign plan, His sovereign will, it unfolds according to His schedule, and you cannot know it beforehand. Now, there's two exceptions to that rule, okay? There's two exceptions. One is prophecy, biblical prophecy. The Old Testament prophets foretold the coming of Jesus Christ, His first coming, so you could be sure about that. Now, they were mis- it was a mystery. Paul called it a mystery that was revealed in the later days, meaning they, in the Old Testament, they had this picture of someone who's going to come and deal with sin and the broken relation between God and man. And, and God had, had given signs of that through things like the sacrificial system. They saw it sort of darkly. They saw it sort of vaguely, but they, they had an idea. They didn't quite have the whole picture, but the prophecies pointed to that, and you could be sure of it, and you could bank on it. And we have the prophecy of Christ's second return. We know that, the, that Christ is going to return. He's going to establish His eternal kingdom. So, that is a, a, a 
exception to the rule. And the other exception to the rule that you cannot know God's sovereign will is that, is that we know the end of history. We know that when Christ returns, what's going to happen? Because He's told us in His Word, in Scripture, what's going to happen. He's going to get rid of all tears and all sorrow and all pain and all evil. He's going to clean and, and purify the, the universe of all of that. We're going to reign with Him forever and ever. So those are the two, two exceptions. And that's the one way that the Bible describes the will of God. The second way that the Bible describes the will of God, but that's, and I should say, this way, the sovereign will, the plan will, it's not actually the main way that the Bible describes the will of God. You know, the main way, the, the central way the Bible describes it, it talks about God's will as His moral will, or what you could call His command will. In other words, this is how we're supposed to live. For example, the Ten Commandments are an example of the will of God, right? 100% of God's will for your life that you are supposed to know about has been revealed in the Bible. 100%. All you need to know about how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ is found in Scripture. Do you hear that? Everything. Everything. I'm pressing this because I'm hoping you're thinking, really, everything? What about all that other stuff you were talking about? Like, you know, what job should I get? And where should I go to school? And what kind of car I should buy? And where should I live? And who should I date? And all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. Everything that God wants you to know about how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ is revealed to you in Scripture. Where God commands, we obey. But what about the job thing? What about the dating thing? There's lots of decisions that we have to make that don't fit that category, the moral will of God. What are we supposed to do? People will say, well, yeah, of course, there's a moral component to a lot of those questions. So, for example, let's take the dating thing for, for, for an example. There is a moral component to that question. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and dating, by the way, is, is biblically is meant to be for the purpose of finding a life mate. It's not just to have something to do on Friday night. It's meant to find a life partner. If that's the purpose of dating, biblically speaking, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible makes very clear that you are only to engage in dating relationships with Christians, other believers. So that's a moral component. But it doesn't say anything. Not a thing about who that person's supposed to be. So Jess and I dated for two years before we got engaged. And up until our engagement, I was completely and totally confident that this is the woman I was supposed to marry. And so I bought a ring. And in an extremely romantic uh, context, and you can ask her about how insanely romantic I am, and she'll tell you the story, I popped the question, and she said yes, and I lost my mind. <laughs> All of a sudden, I freaked right out. I was like, oh, what have I done? <laughs> and I literally, like within an hour of asking her, I got in my car, and I drove to my parents' house and I told them 
I did something, I don't know if it was stupid or not, but I did something. I, I asked Jessica to marry me. Was that a mistake? What if she was the wrong person? Is that who God wanted me to marry? But like, how does this fit into God's plan for my life, etc.? I had completely blown it and thought, what if I screwed up? What if I, what if I am marrying the wrong person? And this is the third will that I'm describing. This is the third will that people talk about. We believe that there is an individual will for our lives that we must discover. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your life and a plan for your life. And your job is to discover what that plan is and then make sure you follow that plan. And, and, and it comes through impressions that you have, feelings that you have. Sometimes we describe the, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, uh, people talk about the still small voice. You know, they're referring to the story of Elijah when God speaks to him in the still small voice in the rock, uh, his experience in the Old Testament. Um, sometimes it's, we think it'll come through visions or maybe dreams. And people are seeking to discern God's individual will for their life. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. He loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. You've heard that before, I'm sure, right? What's the plan? Well, you got to figure that out. Now, here's the question. Does the Bible actually teach this definition of the will of God? It certainly teaches that God has a sovereign will. It certainly teaches that God has a moral will. Does, God, does the Bible teach that God has an individual will for each and every one of us? When you look at Romans 12 or Ephesians 5, you you kind of think maybe it does, right? Then you will be able, verse 2 of Romans 12, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And then Ephesians 5, oh, excuse me, Ephesians 5, one more time, uh, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, is, is this what the, these passages are talking about? That there's a will for each of us individually that we need to discover, I would submit to you that the answer is no. Yes, God maps out every individual person's life in detail. That is true. Psalm 139 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before I lived even one of them. So yes, God has a plan for everybody's life. That's absolutely true. But it's not a plan that you're supposed to discover. It's part of his plan will. It's part of his sovereign will. It's, it's part of his secret will. Was it God's will that I marry Jessica? Yes. You know how I know? Because I did. Was it God's will that Grace Valley Church buy Knox Presbyterian Church? Yes. You know how I know? Because we did. Because it happened. God has a plan for you. He has a plan for us. He has a plan for absolutely everything. Are we supposed to try to figure that out ahead of time? The Bible's answer is no. Well, what do you do with texts like Romans 12? Test and approve of God's will. Every one of these passages that seems to suggest that there is an individual plan that you're supposed to figure out ahead of time, upon closer reading and deeper, what I'll call deeper reflection, actually point to speaking about God's moral will, not His individual will. 
For example, Romans 12, the passage we've used, it begins this section where the Apostle Paul is explaining how Christians are supposed to respond to chapters 1 through 11. He has spent 11 chapters in the book of Romans unpacking these incredible doctrines, the doctrine of grace and the doctrine of sovereignty, the doctrine of depravity, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of sanctification. He's unpacking all these incredible teachings of Scripture, these beautiful doctrines of the Christian faith. And then he comes to the beginning of chapter 12 and he says, now, this is how you live in in, in light of all of that. Remember when Keith preached on this passage and he he made a big deal of the word therefore, the first word of chapter 12? And he said, whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself, what's it there for? Bang on. Paul is saying in chapter 12, in light of everything I've said in verse 1, in view of God's mercy, he's done all these things for us. How do we respond to that? I'll tell you how we respond to that. We obey. See, when it says here in verse 2, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The next verse and the rest of the chapter starts talking about things like, and I just had John read verse 3 so you could see that this is what's going on. It says things like, uh, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. It goes on to talk about using your gifts and how to love others and how to rejoice in the midst of suffering and the fact that we're supposed to practice hospitality it doesn't say anything about who you should date or, or, or finding a spouse or buying a church or what career you should have, nothing like that. The reference to test and approve God's will is a reference to God's law. Let me explain this. If you are a Christian... That means that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. You have said that this person, Jesus Christ, is not just a man like any other man who has lived and had lots of wisdom to share uh, for us to understand how to live good lives. No, no, no. This man is the Son of God in the flesh who came into this world. He lived the life that I should have lived but was unable to live. And then he died on the cross, the death that I deserve to die for my rebellion so that when I put my trust in him, my relationship with my creator is restored. That's what you believe when you're a Christian. He has reconciled me. And now this Jesus, he is the one who directs my life. And he teaches me how to live in light of this new identity. I am no longer a rebel against God, but I am now a child of God. Well, how do I live as part of his family? Jesus is the one who directs me. And so being, the way that happens is by being transformed in the renewing of your mind. The Holy Spirit enables you to understand to test and approve God's will. That's his moral will. Or let me put it another way. Your minds are transformed by his work. The Holy Spirit enters you in his work of regeneration, making you a Christian, transforms your mind, okay, so that now you are not conformed to the pattern of this world, as Paul describes it in in chapters 12. Chapter 12, what's the pattern of the world? The pattern of the world is you live for yourself and you figure out the best way to live for yourself in order to achieve your goals and make yourself happy. But that's not how you live now. As a Christian, the way you live is you live for Christ. And that's your different way of thinking. And so those rules are 
set out as a different way of living, a different pattern. So the different way of, uh, how, how do I, let me check my notes, okay? You are not like the world anymore. You follow a different set of rules, a different way of thinking. Those rules are found in God's law, and the different thinking is that you obey them. Listen, when you're not a Christian, you read the Bible's rules. The Bible has rules just like every way of life has rules. And listen, even humanists, utter atheists, they have code of ethics. They have ways of living. You know, I've never met an atheist who believes that murder is okay. So they all have their own set of rules. They, they do. But here's the difference. The difference is, is that the set of rules, according to the, to the non-Christian, is obeyed or disobeyed based upon their determination of whether it ought to be. Right? Christian comes along and says, hmm, Matthew 8 tell, 18 tells me that when my brother sins against me or my sister sins against me, I'm supposed to go to them and seek reconciliation. That sucks. I don't want to do that. This is my own personal foible, okay? When I get sinned against, the last thing I want to do is to be the one to go and try to find reconciliation. What I want to do is sit there and wait and let them come to me and say, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. And then I go, oh, I forgive you. You know, that's how I want to do it. But the Bible tells me, go and reconcile. And I don't look at that and go, yeah, that's not how it should work. I look at that and I go, mm, okay, Lord. And I obey. That's the transformation. That's testing and approving God's perfect will, you see? <sighs> Nearly every passage in Scripture that looks like, oops, sorry, I'm getting hot, so, that looks like it's pointing to an individual will is actually pointing to God's moral will. Yes, God has a, an individual will for your life. I'm not saying he doesn't. What I'm saying is, you don't get to know it until after the fact. And you're not expected to guess it either. This is the point of all. All of this is, the point of all of this is I'm trying to relieve your anxiety. <laughs> it takes me forever to get to the point. I'm sorry. Some of you are really, really anxious about, well, what does God want from me? Does, I'm, I'm graduating soon. What does he want me to do with my degree? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to fulfill my calling? And I'm trying to tell you, you need to make a decision. God gives you freedom and responsibility to make decisions as you apply wisdom. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next number of weeks. How do, we, how do we make those decisions through the application of wisdom? But you're not, you're not in danger of being outside the will of God if you choose to go and live in Sarnia instead of choosing to go live in Strathroy. It's not like one is God's plan for your life and the other is not. And you better make sure you... Pick the plan, because if you don't, next thing you know, you're going to be off the rails and living sideways and down and out and, you know, homeless and living on a park bench or something. No, that's not how it works. God has a plan for your life, and He will accomplish that plan in your life. Your job 
is to take the freedom and responsibility that comes with being his child and using the wisdom that he provides you through his word and other means, and we'll get to all that stuff in the coming weeks, make your decisions, and then sleep without anxiety and trust that God's plan will be accomplished in your life. You know, I'll, I got a little bit of time, so I'm going to use it. Um, I got this from a, a guy who's written a lot on this subject. Uh, it's called The Parable of the First Supper. So you got Adam and Eve, they're created, they're put in the garden, they're told, you may eat from every, any tree of the garden uh, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, so it's their first day together, they have a great day together, but now it's supper time. And they decide, okay, how are we going to have our first meal? Adam says, or, uh, Eve says, okay, here's the deal. You go, Adam, you go pick the fruit, bring it back, and I'll prepare it, I'll fix it up. So he leaves and he comes back and he's got all kinds of fruit with him. He's got apples and pears and strawberries and gooseberries or whatever. I don't know why I mentioned gooseberries, but... Uh, and, and he drops them off on the table because they've already made a table because they're very industrious. And, uh, and then he leaves again. And so Eve sees all these fruit in front of her and she's got to make a decision. You know, what am I going to make for our first meal? Uh, and she wanted, she wanted this first meal, of course, to be one that, that would please God. She wanted to please God. She loved God. And, but she couldn't figure out which of the fruit she should take to make for the first suffer, supper. And so she prays. And she feels nothing. <laughs> no answer. God doesn't say anything. And this is a time when God like actually talked to Adam and Eve. Okay, So he could have easily just said, hey, make sure you have those strawberries. They go bad quick. But they, she hears nothing. She doesn't feel any peace in her heart about it. And so Adam comes back and, and she's like, here's the problem. I don't know what to have and I've prayed about it and I don't know what to do. And he's, he doesn't know what to do. And so she says, well, why don't you go back and go ask the Lord what we should have and then come back and tell me and I'll make it. And he says, no problem. He leaves, comes back. And she said, so what did he say? And Adam says, well, he said, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. Well, Eve's like, that doesn't answer my question. Um, I don't know. What are we supposed to do? So Adam says, well, I really have peace about um, the apples. I, I feel like we should have the apples. Eve says, okay, well, let's have the apples. But then she's staring at the apples. She's like, okay, how do we eat the apples? Do we eat them whole? Do I dice them? Do I mash them? Do I slice them? What do I do? She prays again. No answer. Still feels no peace in her heart. Um, she goes to Adam. She says, Adam, look, I can't, I, what, how should we have the apples? Go ask the Lord how I should fix the apples. So off he goes. He comes back and she says, okay, what did he say? He's like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but he just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're not supposed to eat. And finally, Adam goes, you know, I think, I think that's his answer. I think that's his point. Eve's like, are you telling me I can't make a mistake here? Adam's like, yeah, I think you can't. Eve's like, fine, fruit salad it is. Thank you, Donna. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we want to follow you, and we want to 
we want to make decisions that are pleasing to you. And sometimes we get, we get mixed up and we, we struggle to make a decision at all because we're, we're sort of paralyzed by our fear of displeasing you. Help us to understand that, that your will is something that you have revealed to us. You tell us how you want us to live very clearly in your word. And you also tell us that you have a plan for our lives, but that's for you to know and for us to discover. And we only discover it as we live it. We're going to explore over the weeks to come, Lord, um, more of what that looks like and, and how actually freeing it can be to live out of that. But help us to trust and believe that. Help us to believe that that is spiritual because there's a sense in which sometimes it doesn't feel very spiritual to live that way. Father, teach us today in the coming weeks to trust you, and to trust the decisions we make when we make them in a way that honors your will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we do have an opportunity to ask a question or two if you have one before we... Uh, go to our closing song. Uh, I may answer your question with like, come back next week or come back in a week after, something like that, because there are a lot of unanswered questions that hopefully will get answered in the coming weeks. But if you have anything right now, feel free to ask away. Okay. Does this mean that, that the subject is less confusing and controversial than I thought it was? I get all excited about something and everybody else is like, what's the big deal? Yeah, go ahead. The question was, for those of you at home, if in three years we can't pay the bills for this church, does that mean we went against God's will? Uh, so the answer is no in terms of violating God's plan because it was part, part of God's plan. Uh, it may, we may look back and have discovered it was foolish. And God's will is, his moral will is that we be wise, not foolish. We're going to spend a lot of time in Proverbs in the next few weeks to, to understand how that works. So it may be that we violated God's will in terms of being foolish, but... We may not have either because we made decisions based upon the information that we had and in three years things could be drastically different. Who knows, COVID may like turn, you know, the, the world may go into a depression which we could not have anticipated, right? So you, wisdom is, is trying to have competency with regard to the realities of life but you have to use the information that you have at the time to the best of your knowledge and then trust and trust it to God and the plan unfolds as he wants it to. It's just like, you know, Jessica is the one who asked this question. It's a great question because when we planted Grace Valley Church, we were like, is this God's will? And people are like, is it God's will for you to plant a church? And we were like, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't sound very spiritual or very um, confidence building right? Like, you know, hey, come join this church plant. Well, is it God's will that you do this? I don't know, but you want to come try? Um, but that's actually it, 
right? We, we were willing to say, we believe it is wise, we desire to do this, we don't see anything morally wrong with doing this, and so we, we will find out if, if, if it's God's will that we plant this church by successfully planting the church. But God owes us nothing. We can try this and we can fail. Same thing with buying this property. God owes us nothing. We buy this property, we try to do good with it, and something, I don't know, the roof caves in, and hopefully we're not here when that happens. And it, it's an abject failure because God owes us nothing. But it doesn't mean it was unwise to try. Yes, Donna. Well, Donna, that's a great question. Donna asked if she hasn't been married for a long, long time. She wants to know if it's wrong to be in a relationship with someone. And that is a question that has a moral component and a wisdom component to it. And you have to answer both halves to know. We can't answer that right now, but I will be happy to talk with you about that sometime to help you flesh it all out. Okay? Okay.